We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast for Thursday, April 1st. I am your host, John McCagney, joined, as always, by Mario Puig. Draft season really in full swing. We got a lot of high-profile pro days to get to, of course, and uh, Mario has been really cranking out uh, the content here as far as uh, draft stuff is concerned. We got uh, his updated dynasty rankings and a recent two-round mock that uh, was posted in light of that big blockbuster series of trades um, last Friday with the with the Niners moving up into the three spot. Um, so I think, Mar- Mario, I want to get things rolling by your initial reactions yesterday or uh, Friday afternoon. You know, it's just kind of slow news day, Friday, March in the NFL, and then all of a sudden we have a massive shakeup, and then it, it just continues to have these shockwaves with Miami continuing to wheel and deal uh, around the first and picking up all sorts of draft picks for, for the future. So what were your thoughts then, and just kind of use that as, as a starting point for uh, where you uh, got things rolling with your mock? Well, the Eagles and Dolphins one, I, I don't really understand at a glance. It seems like one of those things where at least the Dolphins have a pretty clear plan. I don't know if their expectations are uh, as solid as, with reality as, as they might think. Like, I, I don't know if they're in position to still be surprised by any developments or if they basically know what their scenario is going to be from that sixth spot now. But I kind of like the move for the Eagles. I mean, they got a first-round pick next year. The Dolphins are a better team than they were two years ago, but they're still at risk, I think, of being like a 7-9 and nine kind of team 
just if they sort of have some bad injury luck or a, a t- schedule that turns out tough, stuff like that. So I like it for the Eagles. Uh, I think they can move back up if they need to. They've, they've got enough like liquid assets to do that. So uh, they're not locked at 12. They could go back up and do something interesting. I, I project as much in the, the mock draft from yesterday. I have them trading up to seven with the Lions to try to go get Kyle Pitts. And in that scenario, they'd probably be moving Zach Ertz somewhere else and then going kind of like with a two tight end base of, of Dallas Goddard, Kyle Pitts, uh, Jalen Rager on the outside, someone else on the outside, which I think would be pretty interesting, especially with Jalen Hurts. Like that's a lot of stress in the middle of the field and in the front seven for a defense, a lot of uh, – threats in a lot of directions that kind of hopefully play off each other and and make everybody uh, a little more efficient. But the San Francisco trade, that's just confusing to me. Uh, It's it's going in so many different directions, you know, like there were what I don't understand. And and I didn't mean to cut you off, but it it feels like uh, someone put this pretty eloquently yesterday yesterday or two days ago. I think it might've been like Pat McAfee of all people. Um, But he, you know, he was like, okay, We've had for like several years now, Trevor Lawrence as QB1, Justin Fields as QB2, and it's been kind of like understood. Like what changed? Because, you know, Friday rolls around and everyone's like, oh, that's for Lance. And they said it with so much certainty. And then other people are like, well, actually, Mac Jones, uh, you know, his profile fits with the Shanahan, blah, blah, blah. So like that they're, you know, kind of projecting what, what they think onto an NFL front office and yeah. it, that, that's only going to get you so far. So, I mean, again, why do, why do people think that it, it's a definitive, oh, it's Lance, oh, it's Mac Jones, oh, it's Fields, uh, that sort of thing? Well, it's, I could have missed some development along the way, but it sure seemed to me like Chris Sims tweeted out I think it's going to be Mac Jones. And then a lot of people started repeating it. And I, I don't remember which one it was. It was either Mayako or Barrows. I, apologies to whichever one I'm slandering by associating with this. But uh, one of the, one of those San Francisco beat writers was like, I think it's Jones. And, and I couldn't really tell if they were leaning on their sources or, or otherwise, you know, intuition or if they were just copying what Chris Sims said because they might have thought like, Oh, Chris Sims. No stuff, something. Oh, yeah, he's friends with Kyle Shanahan from college. Yeah, so I doubt that part of it, and if that's what people's reasoning is, I, I don't like it at all, really. But I th- I think, um, you know, it's it's there's something to consider there because, obviously, Shanahan went to the Alabama Pro Day. I just don't think that that necessarily means anything. Like, it's it's kind of a it's, – it's just not clear to me what that's supposed to – definitively prove when someone still could see could conceivably trade for the number two pick and uh specifically the falcons i guess i'm thinking of so there's there's something they there's something for them to still conceal even now even though they traded up uh all the same i feel like if they make that trade to go up to three then they i hope anyway knew who they were going to take and so the pro day shouldn't be thing that matters to them like if they made that trade with something still hinging on those pro days Kyle Shanahan's even worse at managing a team than I thought and I thought he was pretty bad at managing a team so it's tough for me like I I think Shanahan's such a complicated person because he's a really good schematic coach and he is capable of identifying talent correctly at times like he looked at you know Debo Samuel and thought oh that's a perfect fit for my offense and he was right but then he also was the same guy who's like I gotta go get Joe Williams I gotta go get 
uh, Dante Pettis. And then he, get, he gets these guys that he handpicks, and not even that long after they're on the team, he's like, oh, I hate this guy. Right. So Shanahan can't evaluate talent. Maybe he's a little better than he used to be, but he'll never be good. And for that reason, it's it's not quite uh, – I don't want to quite rule out the Mac Jones possibility, but I'm really close. Like, it's it's it would be such an egregious error to take Mac Jones third overall, trading up for him. A, he probably wasn't going to go sooner than 13 anyway. Like, it's it's just unnecessary. Uh, I actually projected them to take Mac Jones at the 13th pick in the first mock that I did. I thought that would have been uh, – it wouldn't have been a pick that I liked exactly, but I thought it would have made enough sense because the Shanahan system kind of is just favorable to quarterbacks. Or at least I think we have to conclude that given that C.J. Beathard and Nick Mullins kind of produced on a level similar to Jimmy Garoppolo in that offense. And so – uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, in my opinion, is quite bad, and I think that the, the similar performances from Beathard and, and Mullins pretty much prove as much. But I don't th- like that makes it all the more stranger to trade up for that third pick, three uh, three first round picks they're basically going to spend on this uh, to to take a player who is just a system kind of quarterback. I feel like that only makes sense to trade up for if you're getting someone who isn't easily uh, plugged into your system and someone like Justin Fields or Trey Lance would absolutely qualify as that. So I, I think Kyle Shanahan is a truly bad talent evaluator and I still don't think like I I could just be straight up wrong. Obviously I don't have sources on this. It just, it feels viscerally wrong to me for, for even Kyle Shanahan to take Mac Jones over Fields or Lance. Uh, It's, it's possible. I just can't really, consider it it's just it just feels so wrong but I think Fields would be a good pick and I'm not even as high on Fields as some people like I think he's basically a Marcus Mariota product which is to say like a guy's more toolsy than he is uh like innately talented as a as a field reader kind of quarterback I think at, at, at his best you'll leverage his rushing threat to make the field a little easier to read and you'll you'll hopefully make kind of like a flow chart sort of uh read pattern rather than one where he's truly interpreting the whole field at once. And I don't like the, the criticism that people mention and, and a lot of people get defensive about if he can't, uh, you know, he, getting through his reads or getting through his reads properly and especially trying to infer something about his intelligence from it. It's like, I think there's pretty clearly like a hitch in, in Justin Fields' anticipation abilities when he's looking at an ambiguous field. That's a lot different than criticizing a player's intelligence. Intelligence right. doesn't really have much to do with it. In fact, intelligence can slow you down in that situation because there's no thinking to be done. If you're thinking you're too slow, you have to be able to just react and and know intuitively at a glance in a way that you don't have time to explain. And you guys just kind of tend to have it or they don't. And most don't. And yet there are plenty of quarterbacks who are productive despite this fact. I'm especially thinking of someone like Ryan Tannehill. Like he doesn't have that, but you can, you can construct an offense in such a way that it doesn't matter. And or at least you know it, it minimizes the issue. So Shanahan is still a great schemer, even if he's a terrible talent evaluator. So I think he's the exact kind of coach who could basically push Fields's issues to the periphery and let his his rare t- tools kind of just take that much more space in in the game calculus. So he could be a, a really productive player in the Shanahan offense. I'm I'm more skeptical of Fields than his biggest fans by quite a bit, but I think that would be one of those spots where I, I wouldn't worry about him. No, I, th- I think you, you sum that up perfectly when it when it comes to fields. And I think a lot of the times in this day and age, with with more, um, you know, cherry picking and borrowing 
fr- uh, by the NFL fr- uh, from the college game and, and making it more friendly and, and having it be less of a knock that uh, that this guy didn't play in a pro style offense. I mean, if we if we were analyzing Fields in this same context four years ago, like people would be going absolutely bonkers about like you know the read stuff that that sort of thing. So I mean, it, it is a critique even still, but it, it's much less of a concern I think. Um, with the way that the, the direction of the NFL is moving, so I and, think that, uh, crucially with Fields is like he's accurate and he has a really strong arm. So yep. when he knows where he needs to go, he puts it there. The only issue is that sometimes when he's looking at like a crowded field, like I'm especially thinking of like zone coverages that are sitting on his routes and he's not quite sure where the leverages are, he isn't going to necessarily just guess right. And that's he, he'll decline to try to guess. Actually, it's like that's the thing. Is like he he pulls it and runs. Or he tries to, you know, abort the play basically, and you can do that in the NFL too. But it's the top quarterbacks can, can make the throw even when it's it's not entirely obvious where the opening is. Like they have that prescience, and I, I don't know if Fields does, uh, but he's accurate. There's no questions about like his throwing ability. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. So I like the way you framed that, and, and again, it, it would make a lot more sense to, to go Fields at three um, than a guy like Mac Jones. Just as a, a quick aside. You know, what, what is your valuation of Mac Jones? He seems like just like a supercharged, and, and I know that it's like lazy to, you know, compare within a program, but he just seems like a better version of AJ McCarron or something. Like he, he everything be. was just so tailor made for him. Everything was, was so easy for him. And he had like the, you know, insane talent advantages, not only with the offensive line, but of course the, the Heisman Trophy winning wide receiver, um, a guy in Najee Harris, Jalen Waddell. Just crazy, crazy amounts of, of talent advantages all around him. And in offense, you know, Sark is a wizard, basically, as an offensive coordinator. I don't know about him as a coach, necessarily. I am wearing my Texas shirt right now, randomly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I just think that everything was so easy for Mac Jones. It would have been surprising, almost, for him to be anything less than what he was in, in 2020. So I, I just don't know if the tools are uh, end up being really – I know I just talked about A.J. McCarron, but maybe, like, the best Andy Dalton days, I think, is kind of like a reasonable expectation. And, like, it, it, I don't mean that as a slight. Andy Dalton, for a part of his career, was legit, like, pretty good. But I, I just don't really see Mac Jones being, like, this longtime difference maker, like, a guy that you pound the table for. Yeah, he's tough for me to figure out, and I'm I'm pretty much agnostic on it. Uh, other than I, I don't believe he's in anything close to the level of, you know, fields and lands. I think he's... I, I think Zach Wilson is really overrated, and I still would put Wilson safely ahead of Jones. So if this was going more like uh, Trevor Lawrence at one, Fields at two, Lance at three or four, Zach Wilson at 12, Mac Jones at 22, something like that, that would all make sense to me. And I think f- for those kinds of prices, everybody's various risks are justified. But the idea of Jones at three is just totally not a consideration to me. I think the Andy Dalton sort of theme is is right. I think Dalton was pretty bad even back with his. I, I just think AJ Green was so great. He he told AJ Green and Marvin Jones kind of did a lot of carrying him sure. um, during his his top thirty touchdown seasons. But Jones, I, I don't want to like condemn him to that lowliness of of Dalton. But it statistically, it's hard to imagine him doing better. Uh, and that's. Uh, even if he kind of has an A.J. Green at some point in his career, which if he were to go to some place like Chicago, I guess Allen Robinson would be kind of close. Not quite there, but pretty close. So he he could be fine, and 
in dynasty leagues at a certain price point, it's like a starting quarterback is, is worth taking just to see what the hell happens. It's like even, uh, there have been bad or, or, you know, not great anyway, prospects that have turned out good and the opportunity is currency in itself. So that's something to think about, even if you're low on the guy in terms of talent. But I think he's not quite as, he couldn't be, in my opinion, as quite as bad as McCarron, uh, just because the, their production is actually like pretty far apart. Like McCarron had conventionally good numbers at Alabama and with Mac Jones, you're talking like three more yards per attempt. Uh, you know, at, at like two and a half, three more completion percentage points, touchdown percentage way higher. So, and basically th- that production is in line with what Tua Tagovailoa did at Alabama, which I was also kind of agnostic on him. And part of what I think about uh, Jones depends on kind of how Tua turns out. And I'm kind of getting more optimistic about Tua because I find his critics just kind of in- insane, really. And I thought his his rookie year was kind of fine. Like, it wasn't really indicative either way. It wasn't enough to call him bad the way his his harshest critics have. So I'm kind of getting optimistic for him. And if Jones could match his production, then I can't really imagine him being truly bad. But there also seemed to be, like, a little something less with him than with Tua. And so if, if the difference is, you know, Mac Jones turns out to be an Andy Dalton, that that would at once, like you said, be kind of... Not the best, but fine enough if if you're taking him in, like, the second half of the first round. It's like it's not going to be one of those picks anybody uh, looks back on with, with great fondness in a couple of years, but it also might save them, you know, the, the worst-case scenario of uh, if you're the Bears, like, going through your next Eric Kramer, Dark Age kind of thing. Cade McNown. Images of Ugh. Cade McNown dance through my head as we uh, yeah. bring up the Bears. They're just permanently never going to figure out their quarterback, so... Why even bother? They they voted against the 17 game schedule though, so that was a, I guess their attempt to to, to save their souls or whatever. But the, Pre- credit where it's due, I guess. Yeah. Sure, but, I mean, even though that'll give them the chance to finally have a 4,000 yard passer. Never happened. Yeah, one. that's uh, <laughs> maybe maybe it'll happen. Who knows? It's uh, it's there's nothing wrong with being a 3,200 yard passing team every single year for. Uh, 45 years, even as the rest of the league has its yearly baseline go up by a full thousand yards. But, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe Mac Jones is the savior. Who, who can say? Used to say, indeed. Um, so there was a lot of Bengals references, uh, j- just there. Let's talk about the Bengals a little bit more because they're, they're picking at five. I think the top four is, I will be surprised if there is anything other than four quarterbacks going in the top four, especially in light of that San Francisco trade. So in in a sense, you could say the draft starts at five, but I, I think that the mixture of, of quarterbacks two through four is still up for discussion, of course. But at five, a lot of people have kind of just penciled in, and especially I think it's it's reasonable with the way that we saw Joe Burrow just get absolutely – David Card back there last year, for lack of a better term, um, it would make sense to, for the Bengals, especially if the best tackle in in the draft is on the board, to just go ahead and take him, and then that would be Penny Sewell, and that, that's what a lot of people have projected. But you went a different route, and I think your reasoning was pretty interesting in and of itself. So you have the floor. Yeah, well, Sewell would be a, a really good pick. I think it's just. I, f- I feel like people are overestimating how well he'll do as a rookie because it's really difficult to play offensive tackle and, and offensive line in general as a rookie, but especially offensive tackle 
and especially if you're getting left with the blind side of the quarterback, that's that's a pretty high responsibility task. There's high stakes with those tasks. And Sewell won't be 21 until like October or something, which is incredible in terms of his prospect trajectory. It's just one of those things like, I, I feel like in football, the, putting Sewell at left tackle on a, on a team in week one and starter role, that's kind of like calling up a, a double, a guy who hasn't played higher than double A and he's like 20 and a half in, in major league baseball, you know? And so it, it, it's hazarding something similar to the uh, tackle prospect out of USC that the Dolphins took last year. Like Austin, Austin Jackson. Jackson. So Austin Jackson too. was definitely a lesser talent. Right. But there was a similar concern there because he was very young. And he had, he had like kind of rough tape at USC, but it was largely like ex- explainable because he was so young. Sewell was, is younger yet and has cleaner tape, but it's still one of those things like the jump to the NFL is – just not easy for for rookie offensive linemen. It's, it's a basically you get like a Tyron Smith type, and guys generally less than him struggle at least a little bit as a rookie. And then if if they're young when they come in, it bodes very well for like their year two, year three. But that year one is not a lock to make Joe Burrow's protection much better, especially if Jonah Williams is the alternative. If you know, knock on woods, he plays sixteen games. That's that could be a way to just downgrade a position this year, even though it would be better in the long term. So I think it would be a fine pick, but like that's basically the trade-off they have to think about. It like, are they okay with maybe taking like stagnation on the offensive line and or redshirting Sewell for a little bit? Because if they are, you know, they're going to get probably an All-Pro in 2021 or sorry, 2022, 2023, something like that. Um, but Jamar Chase can help them right now for sure. And like in terms of improving the reps they would otherwise be looking at, whether it's, you know, Auden Tate or Michael Thomas or somebody they, they might get in day two or three of the draft, Jamar Chase won't be matched by any of those options. And if Jamar Chase goes to another team and lights it up and Burrow stagnates somewhat in Cincinnati, people are gonna, people would roast the Bengals in, into like, you know, the distant future. It would be like one of those yeah. Herschel Walker trade infamy type. And, <laughs> and it wouldn't be fair to the Bengals, but that's how the narrative would go. It would be like they, those idiots, they, uh, it would be like the passing on, um, Calvin Johnson for Marcus Russell kind of thing okay. where it's like in the context at the time, there wasn't that much of an objective, uh, you know, indictment to make of the team in question. But if they pass on Chase after what he and Burrow did, at LSU and, and Burrow struggles, people are going to never forget it. That's a, yeah, that's an interesting call. And, and man, that would make the Bengals receiving core insane. I mean, it's already yeah. really good in my opinion. We, we both love Tyler Boyd. We're both T Higgins guys adding a guy in, in Jamar Chase who, you know, is arguably the best receiver prospect in years. Oof. That's, and, that's a lot of weaponry. And it's, it's also, uh, the Bengals did, Kind of, a, at least in the short term, kind of like what you were alluding to. Like they did address tackle this offseason. Right. They, they they made a, a signing a tackle. So him him plus Jonah Williams could be patchwork enough to where the the Bengals take a de- more de- developmental uh, tackle in the second round, something like that. Yeah, if they hadn't take if they hadn't signed Reef or whatever, however it's pronounced, then I would say, oh yeah, it's got to be Sewell then. Mm-hmm. But signing Reef. And having Jonah Williams on that rookie contract, it actually seems borderline inefficient at that point to me to take Sewell. Um, but the other thing is Chase at receiver instead of Auden Tate or whatever other likely alternative, 
is going to help the pass rush concern a little bit. It's it, the, He's not going to hold onto the ball quite as long. The defense won't blitz quite as aggressively. They won't roll quite as much coverage strictly on T. Higgins, limiting what he can do. So now it's like if you got Higgins on one side and Chase on the other, that is helping the pass rush concern, maybe even more than a Sewell pick. That's that's a really interesting way of framing it. I mean, again, like you said, like that would put so much pressure on the secondary. You couldn't just blitz with impunity or send those extra rushers um, af- after Burrow because you, you really, really are, are playing with fire if not just Jamar Chase is out there, but T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd as yeah. well. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not that optimistic about Burrow because of his knee, but having Higgins and Chase is uh, – those, those guys could both be top five receivers in a couple years. Absolutely. Let's get on to our next skill guy up, and we can marry this up a little bit with, with his pro day, which went down yesterday. Uh, but Philadelphia, again, you, you, like you mentioned earlier in the pod, uh, you project them potentially moving back up close to where their initial draft spot was to pick number seven and addressing tight end there. You know, so sort of keeping that same emphasis on the tight end in the offense. I know Kyle Pitts isn't your conventional tight end, not a conventional player really by any means, and his workout yesterday went ahead and, you know, proved that if there were any other questions lingering about that. But Pitts and Philly, what are your thoughts? Well, they would probably need to move Ertz to justify that. Uh, They're not going to run an offense that can feature Ertz and Goddard and Pitts, even if they more or less just make Pitts a wide receiver. Which would which would be a fine use of his. It's it's it doesn't really seem to matter where people are talking about lining him up. It's like he is big enough and and everything to maybe block helpfully. But when you're talking about how much you can scare a defense before the snap in any given play, I guess I I don't really want him in line that much. Or if he is in line, I don't want him blocking from there very much. If I'm putting him in line, it has to do with why who I'm trying to get him matched up against something like that. But if you have an offense that's kind of too tight end oriented, one of those is Goddard, one of those is Pitts, you have Jalen Rager's speed out there. I would try to get another fast guy, I, maybe like a Nico Collins type ideally, who's, who's pretty fast and pretty big, just to kind of have as much balance on that two tight end set as possible, as, as, many, as much plausible threatening ability as possible. And then you leverage all that with Jalen Hurts, like the play action threat, the the uh, the RPO threat, the screen threat to Miles Sanders. I think there's a lot of ways you can stress a defense, and in an attempt to account for those threats, I think the defense could put itself at risk for the big play in a few different ways. So I really like the way that could all theorize, and so I, I think it makes sense if I think it I think it makes sense for Detroit to try to trade back from that seventh pick, uh, just almost regardless of who's on the board at the time. I feel like there's somebody there that should be worth trading up for. I have the Dolphins taking Micah Parsons at six. So if if Pitts for some reason goes to them and they like trade Gesicki or something, then the the Lions could take Parsons, but they could they could trade back to from there. I think Parsons or, or Sewell, I guess, is who I have on the board there. Somebody worth trading up for probably. And um, I think with the Eagles – like corner would make a lot of sense at 12. Like they don't need to trade up. They could just take JC Horn or Pat Sertan, somebody like that. But if they trade up for Pitts, I think that would be a way more than any other realistic option to make their 2021 offense uh, pretty high floor. Like I am concerned about Jalen Hurts as a passer. I don't think he, ha- I think in terms of objective pure passing ability, he's pretty low on the list of starting NFL quarterbacks. I still think it can work. 
because you can leverage his rushing threat to make the defense leave itself more vulnerable against the pass. And when you're talking, especially like Pitts, Goddard, Rager, ideally another one, another good target, that's a, that's a lot of stress on a defense, even if the quarterback isn't very accurate and isn't very great at reading the field because the defense is so concerned with these other things that don't have anything to do with the quarterback's accuracy that it, it just has to leave itself thin somewhere. So I think that would all work well. And I think getting Pitts would be a, a real way to to give Hertz a fair shot for the kind of player he is. And I, I think he can – this is not me trying to talk about him needing training wheels. I, this is just a different theory of quarterback than what's conventional in the league. And I think it could work, but you have to commit to it. Right, exactly. Yeah, you, you, you play to his strengths absolutely. And surrounding him with, with, with talent like a Pitts would, would just really, really kind of help bolster that and, and, and show that, that commitment like you mentioned – and just kind of zeroing in on Pitts and, and kind of uh, flipping this bit over to the dynasty updated dynasty rankings for just a moment. But you have Pitts now in your tier one, um, and this was before I believe uh, his his actual pro day workout, which took place Wednesday, where he ran the you know the timed four 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 to four four six. Um, had the had the other jumps that were that were solid has you know a wingspan basically akin to a great offensive lineman so I mean there, there's just so much to like about about Pitts but you know what's the theory behind him if, if you're attacking him uh, in a dynasty in in your rookie drafts like how high can he be just well I put him at three in that tier one the tier one goes Jamar Chase Travis Etienne Kyle Pitts and Trevor Lawrence. So they're all more or less on a, the same plane to me. But I think Pitts is worth taking, I mean, I guess as high as first overall. Like, I don't I don't think I would, but it, I wouldn't really criticize someone. And if someone was asking me, should I do it, I wouldn't tell them no. It's it's one of those things, like, it, it, it there's not an obvious precedent for it. Like, there's no convention for handling a player like Kyle Pitts that way in Dynasty Leagues. But he defies all conventions to the point that I, I think it's just foolish on its face to try to handle him in a conventional way. Like it's just, it's it's not a sober lookout uh, outlook on the whole thing. So looking in terms of putting him in that top three and in that first tier, what I was looking at more broadly too was just the market of this draft class. And when I was looking at it for this point before draft anyway, these pre-draft rankings, we have to still keep in mind the substantial degree of uncertainty in all of these players, basically, aside from, like, Lawrence uh, and, I guess, maybe Zach Wilson. But these other guys, like Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, even if they're great, if they go to some team where it's a bad quarterback or if they go to some team where they only can get 600 snaps their rookie year, it's like they're just not going to do that much. And it doesn't matter how good they are, really. Or at least it does, the, how good they are can't save them. So if... It turns out that a Tylon Wallace or a Nico Collins or a Tamorian Terry stumbles into 800, 850 snaps their rookie year. Then those are the guys who are going to produce in the short term the most reliably. And especially if they're on a good offense where there's a lot of, there's a big pie up for grabs. That will determine success more than how correct everyone is about ranking these guys, you know, one to 10. It's, it's just not going to necessarily matter. And this wide receiver depth, I think, this, this this wide receiver market is something that rather than specific names that are high in in the talent rankings, it would be better to buy volume, not even almost like blind volume, not knowing which ones are which, uh, with the you know slight caveat of, of above a certain draft capital range, like let's say third round or higher. It's like there's guys who might be in that second and third round range who are 
you know, this is an extreme example, but Terry McLaurin, you know, it's like he, he was projected as like third, fourth round pick type. And someone who bought him just in the term, just on the, the reasoning of like, oh, wide receivers deep, I'll just wait, I'll, I'll just buy volume, see if someone lands in the right spot. He landed in the right spot, and he was a first round value immediately. And so I think there's. Oh, sorry, I just I was just gonna say I think that Pitts cannot be imitated by anybody this year or any other really. So taking him at three or two or one doesn't at all preclude you from capitalizing on this wide receiver class. And uh, the running backs aren't worth chasing either uh, after ETN, in my opinion. So Pitts is worth taking, even if it's some kind of conventional reach relative to, you know, normal tight end reasoning, because you just don't take yourself out of the wide receiver market that much, even so. Right. And and conversely, you know, the, the McLaurin example is a great uh, example of, of how waiting can pay off. And then the other would be just, you know, we got pounded over the head last draft season. Henry Ruggs. You know, Henry Ruggs might be the first receiver draft off the capital. board, and if and if you chase the draft capital, congratulations, you end up with with the guy that went first. But you know, he's probably like maybe wide like your wide receiver eight, eight, wide receiver ten, as far as yeah. the uh, if you were to re rank that class right now. And you know, if you waited a little bit, got Justin Jefferson got over your Kirk Cousins fear, whatever, you know, or, or Brandon Ayuk, you know, probably outperformed expectations, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, to, to your larger point, you know, just because a guy might have that, like, valuation where the pure skill is being ranked, yeah, you, you do need to still account for the, the randomness of a landing spot that, that could, you know, be either beneficial or very detrimental. Yeah, so uh, I think Pitts is landing spot proof. It doesn't matter where he goes, and that just isn't the case for these top receivers who cost as much as him. Yep. All right, let's move on over to the Alabama portion of your mock draft. You got the Patriots going Devontae Smith at 15 and the Cardinals Jalen Waddle at 16. Uh, go off. Yeah, well, I didn't feel strongly about those two or the order, and the Patriots at 15 in this scenario would have Mac Jones on the board, so they could take him. I wouldn't feel strongly about that if they did. I probably wouldn't make the pick, but I'm, I'm also just, I believe in Cam Newton and the theory of the offense that they're building. I think it could actually smash this year, uh, especially if they, like, I'm not high on Kendrick Bourne. I think that's just Belichick being bad at talent evaluation, but if you're putting out like Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle along with Nelson Aguilar uh, and even Kendrick Bourne, I don't who cares at that point. Um, that's that's an offense that with the rushing threats that you can pose on every play, like this this sort of amoeba looking pistol offense. That's something that's difficult for a defense to prepare for because you have to you you won't see it obviously looking at the formation or even the personnel in the huddle. But you have to assume the rush threat first because if you take it if you take it lightly if you don't account for your containment of basic gaps they can just bash you for like 15 yards and then go up tempo on you and never even let you sub you have to call a timeout all of a sudden just to stop uh, Sony Michelle from putting 60 yards on you in one drive that's the kind of that's the kind of way it can unravel if you're not ready as a defense for that kind of personnel and if you can get a convincing pass catching threat. Uh, on both sides of the formation at receiver on the boundary, that's going to make it tougher yet to to account for like the the quick screen to those tight ends or the play action to those tight ends. And it's in the pistol that play action can happen way faster than than it does out of like the I formation bootleg type scenario. So there's just a lot of things that can go right in that offense, in my opinion, if they keep investing in improving the actual reps. And Mac Jones wouldn't do that, but Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle would. 
um, Terrace Marshall would. So I, I really think there's ways that the Patriots can keep adding to their offense that will just make all of the the prior investments that much more likely to, to hit. Like if, if you want Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith to be worth those contracts, you should add more threats at receivers still because the defense can't pay attention to everything, especially after they've accounted for the cam threat, the, you know, that the dive threat from Harris or Michelle or whoever, there's, there's a lot to account for in that situation. And I think that the offense could just go from trash to really good in a hurry. If they make a pick along the lines of Devonte Smith or Jalen Waddle, it wouldn't be ideal for their for their fantasy prospects, especially in year one. But those those 600, 700 snaps they get would be a vast improvement over whatever alternative there might be. Um, for Arizona, I love I gave them just the leftover. Uh, so if I guess if uh, if New England takes Jalen Waddle in this scenario, maybe they maybe the Cardinals still take Devontae. I don't know. Uh, but Christian Kirk is a free agent after this year. I I can imagine Cliff Kingsbury souring on him just because Cliff Kingsbury, the way he has to process. Uh, reality, he can't consider himself the fault in, in Christian Kirk not doing much last year. He can't. Cliff Kingsbury cannot consider him or his, his system the the one who's responsible. So he necessarily needs to reason that someone else is the fault. And they'll they'll probably have AJ Green as a scapegoat this year if he if he has production like last year. But otherwise, it, it might be Christian Kirk, and specifically Kingsbury might have some theory as to what Christian Kirk lacks, and and maybe. He can convince himself that Smith or Waddle have whatever Kirk lacks, but it, it is, of course, Kingsbury that's the problem. Right, exactly. So yeah, we we definitely delved into into the the Cardinals' problems, but yeah, I think I think you're, you're reading ahead correctly in in thinking that that this might be Kirk's last year out in the desert. Let's go over to Travis Etienne. I think this this pick really stands out as one of the better uh, need, like fit needs plus. Um, like draft capital because, I mean, the, you're not taking a running back in the in the top two. There isn't a running back this year that, that would be worth that, of course. But Jets second second pick in the, in this one, uh, I guess, is from the Jamal Adams trade. Um, taking yeah. the taking Travis Etienne at 23. I mean, we talked about it briefly last week with, with Tevin Coleman and his signing in New York. It's like there are. Are the Jets just doing zero RB right now? So I think going ahead and spending a first rounder on ETN, the best running back in the class, would make a lot of sense, especially since they already had or had the ability to address quarterback with their first selection. Yeah, and uh, I got to do it, John. I got to take some time to appreciate the people who are saying that ETN is the running back three. How about it? Javante Williams is better, whatever. Um, it's going to be ridiculous in very near future, in hindsight, to have Najee Harris ahead of ETN. The people who are selling you Javante Williams over ETN, you should make particular note of. That's one of those things. Like, everybody makes mistakes, and everybody, uh, like, I, I make as many mistakes as anybody else. But this is one of those things where if you didn't get it right, it was because you were unwilling to look. It was obvious. There was no good excuse for thinking that Javante Williams was even close to ETN, let alone better. And what do you know? All those narratives, total hogwash, just nonsense. Like, uh, you can't rank ETN ahead. Javante Williams has three down upside. Uh, ETN is too small. Javante Williams is bigger. Javante Williams is smaller than Travis ETN. He is three pounds lighter than ETN and one five seconds slower in the 40. Nice work. Everybody who fell for that one really owes the people who take them seriously an apology because they just, cho- they just chose to be wrong. And it was because 
everybody wants to do this like fan fiction highlight based, just almost just entirely narrative based scouting. You know, and a lot of it too is people who were wrong about Nick Chubb wanted to see Nick Chubb and Javante Williams and see it as a chance to to uh, vindicate their prior errors, and instead they doubled down on them and misled people needlessly. Travis Etienne is the best running back in this class. It's not close. Uh, I hope the Jets take him here because it would also make uh, the the efficiency cult angry because they were so happy about the Jamal Adams trade. Like, yes, they traded a box safety. We hate box safeties. They got a first-round pick. Down with all run defense and run offense aspects of football. It's like, how you like this? We're turning it into a running back. There you go. First round. He's a beast. You're oh, so God. sad. <laughs> Oh, I, I absolutely love that for, for that reason as well. So, so here's hoping just for, for that alone that, that we see this pick come to fruition. But also, I think ETM would be a perfect fit there. And, you know, really I think good, he, man. Yeah, he would be worth the top 40 pick in, in redrafts pretty much right away. Um, let's get moving down a little bit further. Um, or actually, I want to just kind of pick your brain, not just about these um, these skill position guys, but in your mock, you know, doing your research, who are some guys that, that in your mind have really, really risen up or, or really kind of stood out to you as like, wow, I, I didn't think I would have player X this high, but but now, you know, I, I think that he's a, a lock to go in the top 15 or something. In the top 15? Or, you know, it, it, maybe first round just in general. Oh, okay. Uh, well, sorry, just to clarify, is that Dynasty drafts or the NFL draft? No, no the NFL draft. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess... Um... I found myself projecting centers high. I know that's not interesting, but uh, centers going high and some uh, so corners and offensive tackles are going to fill up a lot of the, the first round, too. So some of the wide receivers who are really good are going to fall out of the first. Uh, I have Najee Harris falling out of the first because there are so many just blockers and defenders up there. Uh, it's like a guy like Eric Stokes at corner, I've, I have falling to 22, and I hated having him fall even that far. Like I think that guy probably should be a top 10 pick in most drafts, but it's just, there's, there's no obvious market for it. So very strong draft in those areas. And it pushes some guys out of the first who I still have a very high opinion on for fantasy. It's like Rondell Moore. I have him falling to 33 to the Jaguars where that wouldn't necessarily be ideal for his fantasy prospects, but it would be a totally like, I would, I would say that would be a green light landing spot for his uh, NFL viability because that offense is going to get good a lot quicker than people think with Trevor Lawrence there. If DJ Chark stays healthy and Randall Moore is out there, that's a lot of speed on the field, not just vertically, but left and right. And you have to account for all of it as a defense, the James Robinson dive threat. I like the way that all sounds. And I think uh, also getting Rondell Moore, particularly with the LaVisca Chenault already there and profiling for a similar kind of function, they don't really need to get a of good backup running back. Like they can just take somebody in the fourth round or maybe even some TJ Yeldon type of guy for all I know. Maybe, maybe that'll be good enough behind James Robinson. If Rondale Moore and LaVisca Chenault are both picking up some of the rushing workload and they can both do it on like jet sweeps. Uh, they can, they can do a lot of things. So I just, I just like how variable the threats become in that offense with the Jaguars, with Rondale Moore out there putting another burner on, on, to threaten the corner that DJ Chark isn't running toward, keep the safety split, keep them scared, keep them on their heels. And more, if he's if he's getting like, if he gets 35 carries this year and 70 targets, that might be enough for him to be useful in fantasy, especially if he gets a couple weeks where we know he's playing more snaps because like Chenault's hurt or Chark is hurt or something or other. So I really like that one. Then I have the Jets taking Elijah Moore because 
there was there was some question about his forty time. Like Fusuvu was looking at his forty and thought it was more like a four four seven, and Fusuvu's usually pretty right about that stuff. So uh, the four three four that was reported with Elijah Moore, there's a big gap between that, you know, and yeah. whatever the NFL believes is what. It's going to determine where he goes, but if the NFL believes that at, by the way, five nine and a half is what Elijah Moore measured at, so he's five ten one seventy seven or something like that. That's the same frame as Deontay Johnson, so he can play outside uh, even if he's maybe a little ideally more slot oriented. But a four three five at a at a Deontay Johnson build would basically make Elijah Moore the player that Deontay Johnson Hive thought Deontay was mm-hmm. and wanted him to be whatever. So yeah, like those guys going to to those two spots. I guess the Jets would have to move Jamison Crowder in that scenario, but uh, I think that's something they just do, and and they don't they shouldn't need to think about it too much. Uh, but yeah, uh, also. Kadarius Tony at 39, I think, would make sense for the Panthers. And I'm lower on Tony than most people. I think some people are, are kind of ridiculous with how they hype him. But Curtis Samuel was running like seven yard average depth of target last year, which is to say barely routes at all. So if Tony's a bad route runner, it doesn't matter for that particular role. And he would be pretty dangerous after defenses needing to account for Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore first. No, that's a, yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, Tony would be a, a decent replacement analog to, to Curtis Samuel. Um, like your other points uh, in there as well when it comes to Rondale and and Elijah Moore both. Um, moving forward just a little bit, or actually moving back, Terrace Marshall. What what are your thoughts on him? He he continues to be a guy that that seems to be penciled in as that late first round guy, but still somehow it feels like the, the buzz is awful quiet. It's going to get louder after today, Thursday, because Rashad Bateman is not doing very well at his pro day. I know his super fans don't care. They're not going to listen. How did we get tricked so much on Rashad Bateman's size, though? Is is my like? Did the Big Ten Network like have these guys like inflate the? I, like, I mean, it would have been I Minnesota's Rashad Bateman call. was like the six three yeah. guy. You know, Minnesota made that call. I don't really know why. It is possible that he lost weight too. Like maybe maybe he was six foot. Uh, 207, 208 on the on the real fi- field in that tape, but maybe he was running a 458 at the time, and his agent was like, "Oh, we got to get that number down. Can you lose some weight?" And he was like, "Okay, I guess so." Maybe yeah. maybe he came out there and, and just uh, stopped lifting weights for a few weeks, only did sprint training, something like that, because uh, it seemed like they like if you lose weight, you you will get faster if you train the right way and if you do it over the right timeline, as long as you're not just like you know doing the garbage bag method of losing that weight. So it made some sense in theory, I think, to go to 190 and try to look faster, but he went to 190 and didn't look any faster. Like he ran a, what's going to look like, I think, a 4.5, like a low 4.5 kind of thing. And at 190, with his production profile, that's, that's good enough to stay in the day two range, but that's all it is. That's not a first round profile. His production has always been oversold a little bit, in my opinion, especially especially his freshman year when people are like, oh, breakout, dominator rating. Oh, shoot, like, yeah. You know what the Minnesota depth chart was? Like, he was below baseline in that offense. He wasn't ready. They needed someone better than him. He was just what was laying around. And it doesn't – it's not to say he's bad. Like, he was thrown into a tough situation, and he did really well considering the expectations. But it was not, like, an indicator of future stardom. Terrace Marshall, on the other hand, has been automatic production-wise at a higher level of competition – and he tested really cleanly in the pro day. So he was like 6'3", 205. Um, I'm guessing his 40 is going to adjust to like a low 4'4", uh, doing like 38 or 40 vertical, whatever it was, good broad jump. I think Terrace Marshall is basically what people wanted Denzel Mims to be last year. Uh, and I think Mims can still be good, but 
people got their hopes up, like tr- trying to see things that weren't really there, in my opinion, and trying to play him up as like a top 20 pick. Like this, this guy just dominates on a jump ball downfield. And Marshall is actually that player, in my opinion, because he produced better than Mims at a younger age. And with it, like, it's amazing actually that Terrace Marshall was able to so easily outproduce the baseline at LSU. Uh, or, or even keep up with it when the the receivers that he was trying to keep up with were Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson, who were combining for you know like four times the target volume that he had. So and then then in last year the 2020 season he was just produced as if it were the 2019 LSU offense, even though the LSU quarterback play fell off a cliff and all the other receivers were struggling badly. So I the way I approach it, uh, my process just. Didn't even need much time to look at Marshall. He's a very clean prospect, I think. And if he goes in the first round, it'll age well. I think so, too. Yeah, Marshall, awesome dude. Doesn't get nearly enough buzz. Um, You know, kind of piggybacking off of your, this guy is what we hoped this other guy could be. I think that there's a lot of similarity, and it actually kind of gets reflected a little bit in your mock draft as well. But Nico Collins... It feels oh, yeah. like we're not talking about him enough, and he, he seems to me like the guy that we all wanted Miles Boykin to be. Um, I, I actually think he's the guy people wanted Michael Pittman to be. Like, I think Collins is definitely better in, in terms of that genre of player. Probably more of a downfield threat specifically, but without a sacrifice of any of the intermediate stuff that Pittman is good at. Like I think Pittman's fine. I just To me, Pittman's more like, a 50 grade player. If we're talking like baseball scouting, he's like everyday starter. And I know people in, in draft Twitter, especially hate the word average. Like that. They, yeah, they, they, they take Everyone it as an insult. Everyone has to be special. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you're an average starter, you're, you're a highly distinguished athlete because starters are not easy to find. And if you're a non-liability as one, you're an asset to the team, assuming your salary isn't, you know, way too high or whatever. So, Calling somebody like a 50-grade player is not an insult, and in fantasy, it's not an insult either because everyday players get everyday snaps, and everyday snaps tend to portend, uh, you know, a leading usage. So you got to get on the field to get usage, and we're saying this guy's going to be on the field. What, what else do you really want from me? Uh, with Collins, I would say, though, that because he's a better athlete and because he produced better, and I know people people are going to look at the volume and misunderstand the significance of it. To understand what Collins did at Michigan and to see why his production was so great, you have to look at how efficient he was with his targets and look at what the baseline comparatively was for Michigan. And a base, that baseline was informed by other receivers who aren't bad. Like Donovan Peoples-Jones might not turn out to be great yet, but he probably would go in the third or fourth round if that draft were redone, and he did well as a rookie. So there was him, Ronnie Bell was fine, whatever, Tariq Black, I guess, earlier in Michigan. Nico Collins outproduced the offensive standard set by those guys, even with a quarterback who couldn't throw down field. But his production was just super clean, basically automatic for the usage. And then he went out to the Michigan Pro Day at 6'4", 215, running a low 4'4", running a good three-cone drill. If Nico Collins goes in the first it will age fine, in my opinion. There's no there's no need to rank him that high in your dynasty rankings at the moment because there doesn't seem to be that sort of market for him. But if he goes in the first round, people will probably complain, but they won't by, I don't know, week seven. Uh, Nico Collins is really good. He belongs in the first. I, I, I would not hesitate to take him in the late first if I needed a big receiver. I like it. Yeah, but he, he's really, really interesting, and he, he's done – yeah, the, the production was great uh, when, when he was there. 
And of course, that that workout makes him really, really intriguing. I think I think you have it right that he's going to be um, at least an early day two selection. Um, rounding things out, any other guys that that skill position wise didn't quite make the cut for your for your two round mock that that you that you would not necessarily pound the table for, but but guys that that are definitely on your radar that that maybe are flying under the radar elsewhere, maybe like a Amir Smith, Marset, Diami Brown, yeah. guys like that. Well, Diami Brown disappointed me a little bit with his pro okay. day. He he wasn't he wasn't particularly well built, and he was only like a high four seven, low four, four five kind of thing. Which his his production was good enough that I still think he'll be a very good third round pick. But if someone's taking him like high second, that's when I that's when I wonder like if you're if you're going to regret taking him over some of the other guys. And and I I definitely think so. Like I think Nico Collins is well ahead. I think Tamorian Terry from Florida State is well ahead. Um, I think. You know, I, I wanted to get Tylon Wallace in this third round. I might have made a mistake by not getting him in there. And indeed, with Bateman, um, kind of disappointing today. That could open up the door for Tylon Wallace just taking his lunch now, because that's Tylon Wallace is basically the same build and more athletic than Rashad Bateman, despite the narrative to this point being precisely the opposite. Yeah. So yeah, I think Tylon Wallace belongs higher. If I had to rewrite this, I would put him higher and Bateman lower. Uh, I like Tamori and Terry in that range just because he's he's just he's one of those guys who's got such a high top speed and it doesn't even show up in his forty. Um, like he had a four four five at the Florida State Pro Day, which is fine. But when you when you see Terry really get into his fly route, it, it, you see a point at like twenty five yards or something where everybody else just kind of starts falling back. And I really like his idea. I like him in the Cleveland offense. Maybe not so much for fantasy, but in terms of the fit of that offense. He can just deliver a lot of back-breaking plays if defenses are biting on the play action. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Tamorian Terry doesn't quite get the the pub, you know, which is weird for a Florida State player, but under current Florida State circumstances, it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. I mean, the offense th- has been awful the last couple of years. Yeah, we mentioned Terrace Marshall already, but I think Mim, uh, I think uh, Tamorian Terry is also kind of like that Mims category of receiver. And I, I probably would rank Terry ahead of him personally. So if he ends up in a good situation, that's, that's a case where I would jump in definitely. All right. And then last thing to mention, Jamie Newman. What? I, that was just kind of a, you know, I, I assume there's going to be a lot of things that shock me in the draft and, Maybe for that reason, this is precisely the wrong way to look at it, but I wouldn't be surprised if Newman just kind of showed up just because he does seem toolsy. I didn't think his production was all that clean in college, but if he has a certain level of arm strength, a certain level of athleticism, you can, again, negotiate with the defense sort of openings in in the passing game that can maybe limit whatever issues he has. But he was also, you know, he was thrown into the fire pretty early at Wake Forest, held up pretty well. And we don't know what would have happened in that third year as starter. If he had been in that third year as starter, he very well might have built on his game. Like, especially I'm thinking of like a Dak Prescott kind of quarterback. He was so raw when he took the field for Mississippi State. He was basically a wildcat rushing specialist. Mm-hmm. And then over time, he improved every year. And because he improved every year, we had reason, and especially in hindsight, to say, oh, well, that well, that guy might be good. He's improving every year, so saying he's raw as a passer isn't insightful if he's still improving. It's just saying something that's outdated, basically. And that could have been the case with Newman if he had played a fourth year and he had put up improved numbers. And because he didn't have that year, we can't know either way. But if 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 it does turn out that he would have had a, a jump, then if he's as 
you know, athletic and as good of arm strength as, as we have other, otherwise reason to believe, then absolutely he'll in hindsight be worth a second round pick. Yeah, I think before he opted out, I think that a lot of people viewed him as a top five quarterback prospect in this class. Yeah, so it's like the the missed season should not be written as a negative. You have to put it as a question mark, and with a question, it cuts both ways. He could have taken a big leap, and if he had, he probably would. I mean, my God, imagine if Zach Wilson hadn't played last year, Uh he would have been graded, and he had declared for the draft. They'd be like sixth round, fifth round pick. Mm -hmm. But because he had a a career year that no one expected, uh, a dumb team is now going to take him in the top three. (laughs) Yes, so quarterback continues to be uh, fun to watch how these NFL teams end up evaluating them and over-evaluating in some cases. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Rotowire NFL podcast. Great stuff, as always, Mario. For Mario Puig, I'm John McCackney. We'll be back next week.